Um, this is about more than the resurrection. It's about um, what it means to live as foreigners and exiles in this world, as uh, the Apostle Peter talks about, and uh, suffering persecution in this world. And what I like about 1 Peter is that he describes what persecution is in more than one way. There's physical persecution, violent persecution, but there's also a more subtle, less intense form of persecution that comes in the form of slander and mockery. And that's something that comes up in 1 Peter. And I like that because I can relate to that while I can't quite relate to the, the physical violence. But it's persecution nonetheless. So let's, let's read uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah, when the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Here ends the reading, and we thank God for his word to us this evening. What does it mean to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that is in you? There are many, many things we could talk about tonight, and many, many things that I like to talk about when we talk about the Bible. Um, and so I apologize in advance if we don't talk about something that maybe is on your mind. If you have a particular question about the New Testament, the Old Testament, and why we can trust it, we got to pick one topic and go for it. And tonight we're going to focus on the reliability of the New Testament text. What does that mean? We'll go to the next slide. What that means is, uh, please, I'll say please from now on, I promise. Um, uh, what that means is, uh, have you ever heard it said, hasn't the Bible been copied and recopied and recopied and recopied so many times that we've lost the original meaning or some variant of that? I've been asked that question um, even by a border guard at an airport at immigration check. I was getting my passport stamped and the person asked me, uh, what I do for a living, and I told him, uh, and he's brought it up. Hasn't the Bible been translated and retranslated and recopied and copied so many times that we've lost the original meaning? And I had flown all through the night from the United States into Liverpool, and I couldn't formulate a coherent sentence, much less give a coherent reason for the hope that is in me, uh, unfortunately. But what I'm hoping tonight is that I can give you a few things that you can say, that you can know for certain about the text of the New Testament and whether or not that's a real problem 
for your friends, your family, your coworkers, and so forth. Let's go back to the previous slide. There's a book that came out um, uh, maybe about 15 years ago called Misquoting Jesus. And uh, he, if you, if you pick up the back of that uh, book and you read the back, uh, it's by a scholar named Bart Ehrman. And this is what the back of the book says. And I quote, for almost 1,500 years, the New Testament manuscripts were copied by hand and mistakes and intentional changes abound in the competing manuscript versions. Religious and biblical scholar Bart Ehrman makes the provocative case that many of our widely held beliefs concerning the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, and the divine origins of the Bible itself are the results of both intentional and accidental alterations by scribes. In this compelling and fascinating book, I'm still quoting here, Ehrman shows where and why changes were made in our earliest surviving manuscripts, explaining for the first time how the many variations in our cherished biblical stories came to be, and why only certain versions of the stories qualify for publication in the Bibles we read today. Ehrman frames his account with personal reflections on how his study of the Greek manuscripts made him abandon his once ultra-conservative view of the Bible. End quote. So, the Bible's been copied and recopied. It's been changed. It's been corrupted. And what you've got is basically just for religious zealots and the ultra-conservative is what's being said at the back of that book. And you can bet that book sold millions of copies. What do you say in response? What could you say? What can you say, if anything, in response to defend yourself, to defend your belief in the New Testament? Let's go to the next slide. So we're going to talk about what the actual problem is, because we do have a problem. And we're going to talk about what the real problem is so that you can face it head on. There's two problems, as a matter of fact. Uh, the first problem is with our New Testament, the original writings, the, the physical copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament books, the original writings, the physical things, are lost. They're gone. We don't have the original physical copy of any New Testament book. Okay? Now, that's not unique to the New Testament. That's just how things happen in, antiqu in antiquity. Things that happened 2,000 years ago, they just don't survive normally. But it is true for the New Testament. Now, we do have lots of copies. We have lots of handmade copies that have been passed down to us from various centuries uh, that came after the time of the New Testament. We have, they're called manuscripts. A handmade copy of the New Testament, any portion of the New Testament. We have many. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the second problem is that those copies that we do have have differences in wording. They have differences in wording. Let's look at an example. Let's go to the next slide here. So a, a textual variant is what I'm going to be uh, talking about for the next little bit. A textual variant is any place where the surviving manuscripts that we have of any New Testament book differ in wording. They differ in wording. Let's look at an example. So the next slide should have one. Here we go. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. The Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus is speaking, and he says, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Now those red words there are an example of a textual variant. Some copies of Matthew's gospel that have come down to us from antiquity have the words without cause, and some copies do not have the words without cause. Some just go straight through, like I read it, without, without the red words. Some don't have them, and some do. They say, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. So there's a textual variant, one example of a textual variant. Quite an important textual variant, wouldn't you say? I have two brothers, and there's one version of that verse that I really want to be original, and there's another version that I don't want to be original because I've been angry with my brothers several times. Not always with good cause either. The, the original Greek word uh, that stands behind that, that, the red words is just one Greek word, and it's a small Greek word, and it's just dropped out, and it changes the meaning quite a bit, doesn't it? So that's just one example of what I mean by a textual variant, part of the problem that we do have with the New Testament text. We don't have Matthew's original physical thing that he wrote, but we do have copies. We have copies made by hand, but unfortunately, the copies that we do have differ in wording at certain places. Now, we're going to make it a little bit worse. Just for one more step, we're going to make it a little bit worse. Don't run out of the building. I promise you, I will make it better. I'll tell you the solution to the problems we have. But let's go to the next slide. Scholars estimate, estimate how many textual variants there are. If you total them all up, count them all up, looking at all the manuscripts we have, count up all the textual variants. There's a lot, there's quite a few. There's probably somewhere around 400,000 textual variants. That's more words there are in the New Testament. This is what Bart Ehrman and scholars that are writing these books called Misquoting Jesus have in their favor. That's what they're writing about. There are so many textual variants, they say, so many places where the existing manuscripts are different that we can have no confidence, no idea what was originally written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and the rest. And you can see why that has a lot of force to it. That argument has a lot of bite to it if you hear someone talking like this. So what I'm going to do from here on out, we're at the bottom, right? We're at the lowest point, I, I promise you. We're going to work our way up from here, and I'm going to tell you why that should not scare you at all. That should not scare you at all. And in fact, what I want to talk about for the rest of uh, uh, our time together is how we can have absolute rock-solid confidence in the text we have. Absolutely, this should not scare you. We're going to talk about three main points. First point, let's go to the next slide. We'll talk about the amount of evidence that we do have. And when I say evidence, I mean copies. I mean actual things that still exist, that, that have come down to us from history, that have been dug up by archaeologists, that have been discovered in different ways. Um, uh, let's talk about the amount of evidence we have. Think about that big number, 400,000. Why is that number so big? Is that because the New Testament is just, you know, chaos with everyone rewriting and recopying as they want? Not at all. 
the reason why we have so many textual variants and so many places where there's differences is because we have so many manuscripts. We have so many New Testament manuscripts that have come down from antiquity that it's just a simple matter of mathematics. If you have a lot of hand-copied manuscripts of one text, you're just going to get a lot of textual variants. It's simple mathematics. In fact, today, we have extant, and extant means we can still see it. We still have it. It still exists. It hasn't perished in a fire or disappeared off the face of the earth yet. We have over 5,000 handmade copies coming down from antiquity, before the printing press, 5,500 plus. I, I don't have a precise number there because the number goes up every year. New Testament manuscripts are discovered every, well, <laughs> they're discovered on average, consistently, constantly. We're going to have a time for Q&A afterwards. Um, so if I say something and that sparks a question, jot it down, and I promise I'll try and, and, and get at it in the Q&A. Um, uh, a dull pencil is better than a sharp memory, right? That's what my dad used to say, I think. Or do I have it the other way around? Okay, 5,500 manuscripts. In a couple of minutes, I'll put that in perspective and it'll make a bit more sense. But that's not the only level of evidence we have. That is a lot of material evidence, but we have another layer and another layer on top of that. What's the second layer? We have translations of that original Greek text. They abound um, in ancient manuscripts as well. So immediately when the gospel was preached and it went from Jerusalem to Egypt or Asia Minor or Italy, North Africa, in their own languages, they translated the Bible very, very early on, early as the second century, the third century. And when they did that, they made a really nice time capsule of what the text of the New Testament looked like at the time of copying. And so we have another additional level of evidence. We don't just have many, many stacks and stacks of Greek manuscripts, which is what the language it was written in. We have additional languages as well. There are languages like Latin and Syriac and Coptic. And if you have nothing to do with your life, you can learn one of those languages and study the Bible in it. It's amazing. And the field is wide open because no one wants to do it. Then there's a third level of evidence beyond that that works as a good check and balance to make sure that we have a good, accurate text. And it's not just the text of the New Testament in Greek or other languages. There's also the quotations of church fathers. Wonderful check on the text. So imagine all the church fathers you can think of. Think of people like Augustine, Jerome, these names that maybe you have heard of before, maybe not. Well, what did they like to do? They liked to argue about the Bible, didn't they? They liked to argue, they liked to preach sermons, they liked to write theological commentaries, they liked to uh, debate with one another, and when they did that, they quoted the New Testament. They said, as it says in John, quote, da 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 da, da. and when they do that, that gives us a really nice, accurate way of establishing what the text of John looked like at a certain place and time. So what I'm trying to get at, and if you haven't followed anything I've said, what that slide is trying to convey to you is we have an abounding amount of evidence, hard evidence to study. Sometimes you get the impression that there's, there's nothing behind the Bible. 
It's just kind of floating in time. There is a very, very vast pile of manuscript evidence that this is resting on. And in fact, it's more evidence than any other ancient book that you can compare it to. Let's look at the next slide, please. So this is a slide of uh, the number we just saw, 5,500, in comparison to other books comparable to the New Testament. And I'm not cherry picking badly attested books. I'm picking the best attested books from history. Now, because of the slide layout, you've lost the words there, but I will supply the words for you. Far left is the New Testament, way up there, 5,500. Wonderful. The next best attested book after the New Testament is the Iliad by Homer. Okay, I don't think you have to read that in school anymore. Um, I had to read it in college. I had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it's kind of funny that the Iliad is more popular from history because that's the boring one. The Odyssey is the fun one where all the adventures and stuff. The Iliad is just speeches. But in any case, the Iliad has come down to us with 1,700 existing copies. 1,700, 1,700 roughly. That's the second best attested book in history after the New Testament. 1,700 is really good, but it's nowhere near the amount of surviving copies that we have for the New Testament. The next one after that is Demosthenes, and we have a copy of his speeches, his speeches. And I forget the precise number. We have 340 copies of Demosthenes' speeches. And I'm not cherry-picking badly attested books. I'm showing you the best attested books from history after the New Testament in terms of the number of surviving copies. Isn't that amazing? That's not the impression you get from the back of books like Misquoting Jesus or if you, you know, watch the History Channel or something like that. That's not the impression you get at all, unfortunately. People like to just ignore this. I'm not even going to mention the rest of them because it's irrelevant. Let's go to the next slide. Now we're going to talk about a second point. So the first point that we want to make is that our New Testament rests upon an abundance of riches in evidence in terms of surviving evidence of the manuscripts, of the actual copies that we can look at. We can still see. You can go on the internet right now if you have an internet connection and look at many, many manuscripts. They've been high-res, scanned, and you can, if you want to learn Greek, come down to the college, I'll teach you, and then you can read the manuscripts for yourself. They're not hidden away in a vault somewhere. They're not, they're, we have nothing to hide. They're publicly available for you to read. I'll say more about that in a minute. Now a second point. How good are those manuscripts? Right? That's a good question. Were they copied by people that didn't know what they were doing? I spoke to a young man uh, who was back in the States uh, a couple of weeks back, and he said his co-worker said, yeah, there might be a lot of manuscripts, but they were copied by people that didn't know what they were doing. Just some monk in a cell somewhere in Ireland. Didn't know what he was doing. Just scribbling. Really? How do you know that? We'll say more about that in a moment. But 
Are they good manuscripts? Are these, is this good evidence or is this just a lot of bad evidence? Well, what's being shown on this slide here is the date of manuscripts, meaning how much time has elapsed from the time of writing to our first extant manuscript, our first manuscript to show up of that book, how much time has elapsed? Why do you want a short amount of time? Because there's less time for changes to be made. If you have to wait 500 years after the time of writing to your first manuscript, what's happened in those 500 years? You can't quite know. So what's the quality of evidence we have with the New Testament in terms of the date of manuscripts? Well, far left is the New Testament again. We have about a 100-year gap. About a 100-year gap between the completion of the New Testament and the first available manuscript that has been discovered. The first available manuscript that's been discovered of the New Testament is dated somewhere in the middle of the second century. That's the 100s. So there's about a 100-year gap, probably less, but we're being, we're being safe on the safe side, saying about 100 years. Now, the second one, again, you can't see the name, that's Homer's Iliad. You have to wait 400 years from the time of writing to your first copy of Homer's Iliad. Demosthenes, it's about 350 years. And then for other books, the time you have to wait is massive. Tons of time has elapsed between the time of writing and your first manuscript. So again, not just the amount of manuscripts, but also the date and quality of those manuscripts is superb for the New Testament. Let's go to the next slide. I forget what the next one says. Let's go to the next one. That just says what I already said. Okay, let's put the two things we've mentioned uh, together visually. Okay, so there is a timeline elapsing from 100 AD to, I forget, 1000? 1000 AD, yeah. So there's your timeline moving from the left to the right. And we're going to plot on there the manuscripts, the books that we just talked about. Okay, so next slide. Those are the books we talked about. The big one is not the New Testament. The big one is Homer's Iliad. You wait 400 years, and you get a big, nice chunk, 1,700 manuscripts. That's pretty good in comparison to the other books, right? Well, here's the New Testament. Next slide. In terms of just the size of the amount of manuscripts and the date really, really close, shifted all the way over to the left, just about 100 years maybe have elapsed. There's just almost no comparison in the quantity and quality of manuscripts we have for the New Testament. We have what one scholar has called an embarrassment of riches. So much physical evidence to sift through and read and study and compare. God has blessed us with a Bible that is rock solid in trustworthiness. Okay, next slide. So, a lot of facts, a lot of figures. Let's look at some pictures. Okay, so what you're looking at there are two different manuscripts. Those are examples of manuscripts. That's, those are as early as you get. And no wonder they look like that. Um, these are dated to the second century, so sometime in the 100s. Uh, the one on the left is a bit of John's Gospel. Um, the bit on the right, excuse me, the manuscript on the right is a bit of Matthew's Gospel. 
and they are extremely fragmentary. They're very small. They're blown up so you can see them. They're about that big a piece, and there's writing on the front and the back. Um, and that's what manuscripts look like when they come from the second century. Why? Simply because it's been a long time, but also because Christians at that time weren't very popular. Um, Christians, as you know, were persecuted, and their books were burned, their books were ripped up, <laughs> and they uh, didn't have lots of money. So we move into the next century and go to the next slide, please. And that's what manuscripts begin to look like in the next century, in the third century. And everything I'm showing you, the, these all exist. They're still here. They're still being able to be studied. Um, the one on the left there is a uh, page out of a big stack of pages dated to 200 AD, a stack of Paul's letters. And that manuscript you can go see yourself for free if you're willing uh, and able to drive to Dublin. There is um, the Chester Beatty Library. You can go see that manuscript. Um, it still exists. You can look at it. If you're afraid the that, that the Bible's been corrupted, you can go look for yourself. The one on the right is John's Gospel, dated to a little bit later than 200, sometime in the 3rd century, sometime in the 200s. Okay, these look a little bit better. They're 100 years younger than the previous ones. Next slide, please. That is what manuscripts begin to look like in the fourth century. Why? They got, Christians got some money in the fourth century. Christianity all of a sudden is legal. Christianity is no longer a persecuted uh, uh, religion in the time of the fourth century in the Roman Empire. Constantine changes that and he funds the production of Bibles. And so uh, if you're worried that some scribe in Ireland in 1000 AD didn't know what he was doing, well, this, here's a complete Bible, not just New Testament, also Old Testament, from the 300s, from the 300s, complete Bible. Things still exist. The whole thing's been digitized. You can look at the entire thing for free online. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. So just jot that down real quick and look it up on, on the website. Next one. So that's the image we started with. That's the image we started with. And that comes from that manuscript, Codex Sinaiticus. That's the beginning of John's gospel. So when someone says, oh, those scribes didn't know what they were doing. I wish I could show them that picture. Look at the, the artistry. Look how well that is executed. I mean, if I didn't have lined paper, I'd be up and downhill. I'd be all over the place. I couldn't do anything consistent like that. I'd spell things wrong, et cetera, et cetera. You better believe the scribes knew what they were doing. Okay, next slide. Right, okay. Take a pause here before we get into our third point. First point is that we've got lots of stuff to study. We're not searching for stuff to study. We've got so much evidence for the New Testament. We can't handle it all. The next point is that it's good evidence too. Speaking as a historian, we've got really good early evidence that we can look way, way back into time. We're not worried about copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We're not worried about that because we have all of those copies. They still exist. We can look back into the fourth century back into the third, back into the second. 
And we can see where changes are made and when. That's absolutely invaluable for scholars and historians. Now we're going to talk about a third point. And this is where that, that big 400,000 number comes back into play. We're going to talk about the similarity of manuscripts. The similarity of manuscripts. So that picture right there is a scan of this book. It's my Greek New Testament. Um, what There should be arrows. I think you can see arrows pointing to the bottom half of the book. So that's a Greek New Testament. And that's the one I use every day. And the arrows pointing to the bottom are pointing to what's called the textual apparatus, which is a fancy way to describe the collection of all of that manuscript evidence boiled down to the bottom half of the page. Every place where there's a textual variant, where there's a, a difference in wording between our manuscripts, is available to see and to read right there at the bottom half of the page. It's not hidden away. It's not kept secret. It's not a mystery. It's not just anything. It's all been cataloged. It's all been studied and presented for anyone that wants to read it, right down there at the bottom half of the page. It's there. Now, there are some faiths and some books that I cannot say that about. And I cannot say that it's open for study. What, what makes Christianity different is that we have nothing to hide. We're an open book, literally. Let's go to the next slide. 400,000 variants. What are the variants? What are they? Well, the vast majority of them are meaningless. The vast majority, the absolute vast, huge majority of those are absolutely meaningless. Examples of them are uh, the spelling of the name John. In Greek, you can spell John with two N's or one N. And every time a scribe wrote John with one N, and then the next line, he writes it with two N's. That counts as a variant. And every time the name John shows up, and every time a different scribe or a different copyist makes the same spelling error, every single time those count and add to that number of 400,000. Same thing when you flip two names, James and John, John and James, those count. Um, the Greek uh, language uses the, the word the way more often than English. And so it's quite common to put the word the in front of a name, a proper name, like Jesus, the Jesus, it looks like we'd, you wouldn't say it. It makes no difference in meaning. But every time it comes in and out and in and out, those count as textual variants. What constitutes the vast majority of the 400,000 thing are meaningless differences that we cannot even translate. They make no difference to meaning. Now, there's um, some, man some variants in our manuscripts that do make a difference, that do have a meaning change, but they're not viable. They're not viable, which basically means that no one in their right mind thinks that's what was written originally. For example, in the book of Revelation, uh, John says, uh, the former things have passed away. 
The former things have passed away. The manuscript we just looked at, Codex Sinaiticus, the scribe, the copyist producing that manuscript made an error in Revelation when he was writing the former things have passed away. And I'm not making this up. It says the sheep have passed away because the words in Greek are very, very similar. It, it's uh, prota is the former things and probata is sheep. Very similar. Two letters difference. That is a textual variant, isn't it? It's a place where our manuscripts differ in wording, but it's not viable. And uh, when you get rid of the vast majority of the spelling changes and the grammatical changes that make no difference, the next category are changes that are not viable, and no one thinks that they are viable. Only a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the actual differences we have are both meaningful and viable, okay? We'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, but let's go to the next slide, please, and thank you. Here's the thing you need, you've got to remember. No essential doctrine of Christianity hangs in the balance because of a textual variant. Not a single one. Not a single one of the essential doctrines of Christianity hang in the balance because of a textual variant. Let me give you an illustration. I was at an academic conference a couple of years ago and the conference was uh, biblical scholars were at it and they were debating and it was scholars from all across the spectrum uh, theologically that is um, some conservative some liberal some atheists so very mixed crowd and the debate in the room at the time was whether Paul the apostle usually said Jesus Christ, or I should say wrote, whether the Apostle Paul wrote, usually, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Let that sink in. That the debate in the room was of such a tiny, tiny issue about which one did Paul prefer to write. Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. The debate in the room was not whether Paul regarded Jesus as the Christ, which means Messiah. That was absolutely crystal clear. No question in the manuscript. No doubt in anyone's mind because that does not hang in the balance because of a textual variant. The textual variants are at the level of affecting which one was Jesus's first name and which one was his last name of course Christ isn't his last name but you know what I mean the things that we talk about as the core essential doctrines of Christianity the resurrection mentioned earlier the you know the bodily return of Christ his virgin birth salvation by grace fruit through faith the full divinity the full humanity of Jesus not a single one of those is in any danger because of a textual variant. Now, um, let, me, let me read from Bart Ehrman again, because I don't want you to think that maybe I'm just lying to you. So I'm gonna have Bart Ehrman tell you what I just said about that slide, believe it or not. This comes from uh, the, the end of his book, buried in a, 
an appendix, actually a footnote within the appendix at the back of the second edition. Uh, it's hard to find, but uh, he says this. And he's talking about Bruce Medsker. Bruce Medsker was his, um, his doctoral supervisor. And so this is Bart Ehrman, the guy we talked about at the very beginning. We read the back of his book, remember that? Here he says, and I quote, Bruce Metzger is one of the great scholars of modern times, and I dedicated the book to him because he was both my inspiration for going into the field and the person who trained me. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him, and even though we may disagree on important religious questions, he is a firmly committed Christian, and I am not, we are in complete agreement on a number of very important historical and textual questions. If he and I were put in a room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement. Maybe one or two dozen places out of many thousands. The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Can you believe it? How can that exist in the same book as what was written on the back of that book? Here he just said that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the New Testament textual tradition. So don't take my word for it. Take Bart Ehrman's word for it. I don't think I'd never find myself saying that, but do take his word for it there, not at the back of the book. Let's see, if there, are there any other slides to get through here? Oh, yeah, so let me just reiterate the fact. This is just an illustration of the amount of manuscripts that we have and the dates that they come from. This comes from a book that was published um, uh, last year, I, I suppose, a book to which yours truly uh, contributed. So if you're interested in more reading and uh, uh, research on this and how you can get a bit more information. Um, I'd be happy to give you uh, the title to that book and how you can uh, identify it and get it for yourself. But this is the kind of thing that really, really helps us as scholars of the Bible because we can say if there's going to be corruption and problems in the New Testament, uh, look at how that chart allows us to spot where they occur, when they occur. And we can get back behind it. We can look back earlier to earlier uh, states of the text. So when people say the text has been copied and recopied so many times we've lost the original, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense because we still have in existence the ancient copies way back in the second century, the third century, the fourth. We still have those. So we're not relying on yesterday's copy or the copy from the day before yesterday. We're not stuck with those. We get stuff that's super old, super old, all the way back until the time is almost negligible between the writing and our first earliest manuscripts. Okay, next slide. I think this is our conclusion. Yes, yeah, so what do we say? What do we say in response to someone who says you can't trust that New Testament text? Well, if we're talking about the transmission of the text through time. We have a lot in our favor. We have the fact that the New Testament is the best attested book in terms of manuscript quality and numbers of any book from antiquity. 
And that's not me as a conservative Christian saying that. That's me as a historian saying that. That's just true. There's more material evidence for the text of the New Testament than any other book. The remaining problems that we do have, and we do have some remaining problems, that's why you know, scholars have jobs and things to argue about, but remember the, the nature of those problems. The nature of those problems are very, very minor in comparison to what has been absolutely settled and is without question. So I think I've probably filled your brain with enough information for one evening. So I'll remind you that we'll have a spot for Q&A. If you have any questions, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, right now, uh, I'll, I'll wrap things up and end there. Okay. Well, um, I imagine this isn't the ideal format for Q&A, uh, but I want you to feel uh, more than welcome and comfortable to uh, ask any question that may have cropped up, whether it's relevant or not. I won't be offended if you ask about something I didn't talk about or a different question that is only marginally, tangentially re related to this one. That's completely fine. Anybody um, bold enough to, to voice uh, a question that they might have had? Something I could clarify or restate, anything like that. If anything's fair game. Sure. That's right, yes. So Josephus is a Jewish source from the first century AD, shortly after the time of Jesus. And Josephus as a historical source is somewhat controversial um, because he has two references to Jesus. One reference appears to be embellished. That is, in the copying history of Josephus, it seems that what he says about Jesus has been embroidered a little bit and added to. He mentions Jesus, and then it looks like he goes on to say, who is called Christ. And that doesn't quite sound like what Josephus would say, because he's a, a good, faithful, orthodox uh, Jew. So most scholars today would say that that first reference to Jesus is probably authentic, but has been embellished. So he does talk about the existence of Jesus as a historical person, but does not recognize him as Christ. And the reason why that's the conclusion that most scholars have is because Josephus references Jesus again in another later book without an embellishment. He just mentions the historical Jesus in another context without recognizing him as the Christ. So Josephus, to summarize, is a good historical reference, or uh, good historical proof of the historicity of Jesus, but not necessarily much about his life. I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but it's a very good question. There was another one over here, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, it sort of depends on which direction you're going, if you're going back in time or you're going forward in time. 
Uh, and what I mean is there are books that were written after the time of the New Testament, which are called Gospels that refer to Jesus, but the Christian church does not recognize them as authoritative. On what basis has the church made that decision? Very sound basis. Um, the reason why we don't recognize any later Gospels as authentic or authoritative is because they are unanimously agreed to have been written in the second century and later by people that couldn't have been around to know eyewitnesses or be eyewitnesses themselves. And so the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are by all accounts the earliest sources to Jesus. They're not just the ones we like. They're the earliest accounts there are to Jesus in any case. And that's not a controversial thing I'm saying. I'm not saying something that only evangelicals believe. I'm saying something that is um, agreed by scholars all across the theological spectrum. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the earliest records of Jesus' life. Absolutely. No question. They have the only um, plausibility to have been written in the first century. Any other text about Jesus is agreed by scholars to be second century, third century, or even fourth or later. So you've heard probably, maybe you're talking about the Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Thomas is a well-known uh, non-canonical gospel. Um, unanimously agreed by scholars to, be, have been, to have been written in the second century. So it couldn't have been written by any Thomas that we know, and it couldn't by, be by any eyewitness. So why would we recognize that? And then when you read it, and you realize, okay, not only is it late, not only is it not by an eyewitness or a follower of an eyewitness, the, the theology in it is wild. Just, I mean, the thing about apocryphal gospels and non-canonical gospels is just read them. Just go read them, and you'll instantly realize why we don't recognize them. I mean, the, the last verse of the Gospel of Thomas, does anyone know what that is about? Uh, I won't go, I'm going on a rabbit trail here. Uh, the, the disciples say, um, you know, send Mary away from us. She can't, be, uh, she can't be a disciple. And Jesus says, well, first let her become a man, and then she can be my disciple. I'm not making that up. That's the last verse of the Gospel of Thomas. So, you know, anyway, uh, I digress. So the, the key points, the bullet points, the four Gospels we have are the earliest. Everyone agrees that. Second bullet point, they're the only ones that have any authentic connection to an eyewitness. Third point, from the very beginning, they were the ones accepted by the universal church. So when you look back and you say like church fathers, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Augustine, those guys, uh, all of the unanimously across the empire, the Roman empire, they are reading the four gospels. Then if you look at the manuscript evidence for them, they're terrible. So I talk about 5,500 manuscripts of the New Testament. How many do we have of the Gospel of Thomas, the most famous apocryphal gospel? Four. One is complete, and it's not even in the original language. So we have three copies of the Gospel of Thomas in Greek, and they're just fragments. Do you know why we don't read the Gospel of Thomas? It's not because it's been whitewashed, it's been kicked out of the church, it's been erased. <laughs> it's because it lost its relevance. It lost its relevance. I have a whole other lecture I could do on that. 
which I'm delving into at the moment, and I won't. I think I've said enough to give a couple bullet points there. Yeah. Anybody else? There was another. Yes. Yes, sir. That's a good question, and there isn't a very um, widely accepted answer to that. The best answer I can give is that um, from what we can tell about what Jewish people were recognizing as authoritative in the time of Jesus, it looks like the 39 we've got in the Old Testament. So how, what sources do we use for that? Well, we look at the New Testament. We look at the actual writers of the New Testament because they constitute, most of them, good first century Jewish people. What are they writing about, commenting on, drawing from, and saying when scripture is fulfilled, what do they refer to? We're talking about the 39. Josephus is another good example of a representative Jewish person from the first century. What does he recognize as the Old Testament? The 39 so on and so forth. So the best that we can tell from early sources like that, we don't have a very good cutoff date to say some council or something. We don't have a good example of that. What we do have is the practical use in worship of Jews in the first century, like Josephus, like the uh, early Christians, other sources like that. And it is pretty much what we've got. Yeah, There are a couple that are, you know, argued about, for example, so another source in addition to the New Testament, in addition to Josephus, are the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm sure you've heard of. When we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they've got all of the canonical Old Testament books attested there, with the exception of the book of Esther. So there's a question. Can we not find Esther because they didn't recognize it as authoritative? Or did it, is it just happenstance that we just didn't find it among all the, the bits and pieces. So there are questions like that, but they are relatively minor. It doesn't look like a council decided. It looks like we have what is the accepted practice of the worship of believing Jews in the first century. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. That's a great question, yeah. Um, and you're not gonna get me pegged on one translation. Um, so, so as I said, I, I, I teach Greek down at the college. And one of the things I love to do is just pick on all the translations and whatever, whatever favorite translation the students have, I kind of pick on them and say how this could be different or something like that. The bottom line is whichever translation you use is the best one. There's different translation theory, right? There's different ways of going about translating, whether you're translating the particular form of a word or the idea that that word represents, and there's kind of a spectrum between them. And one of those isn't necessarily better than the other. What I love is that we have many multiple translations, and they all kind of, like a symphony, they all attest to the same truth. And so, um, it's good, to, it's good to recognize what's a translation and what is a, uh, a paraphrase, paraphrase. 
because a paraphrase is not a translation. It's good to recognize the difference between that um, because there is an important difference between a paraphrase. What's an example of a paraphrase? Is the message a paraphrase? I think that's, it's called the message. That's a paraphrase. It's not quite a translation. It's good to recognize the difference between that. But NIV, great text. Authorized, great text. I mean, uh, ESV, great text. Um, so, um, no, you're not going to peg me down on, on just one. <laughs> it's a good question, though. Yeah. Anybody else? Please do. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, what does that mean? Does it mean the, the disobedient in the time of Noah? Or does it mean some sort of interim period between? Um, to be honest, I don't know. I'll just keep it simple and say um, I've not read a good interpretation of that that I feel completely comfortable with. I think it's entirely possible that Jesus did have some sort of proclamation in an underworld thing, but um, I'm not sure that that makes the best sense of that text. It could also just simply mean that, well, I'll stop there. The bottom line is, I don't know. I don't know. That's one of the trickiest bits of the New Testament, and um, there are a couple of options of how to actually understand that. That's a great question, though. Yeah. But, yeah. I wish I could answer them all like that. Uh, any, anybody else? An another issue that um, some people ask, how are we doing on time? You're probably ready to get out of your face masks and everything. But let me just say one, one quick thing that some people ask, and maybe you're thinking this and you are afraid to, to speak up. Where do we actually find these manuscripts? Where, do, where are they actually discovered? Let me just say a quick word about that. Um, the 20th century past 100 years was the most productive time in history of discovering manuscripts. Absolutely amazing. They're just discovered everywhere. Okay, they're not discovered everywhere, but they're discovered in different ways. Sometimes the spectacular discoveries are like the Dead Sea Scrolls where they're actually just rolled up uh, in linen and put in a jar in the sand. Sometimes it's, they're discovered like that, but not always. Very often they're discovered in libraries of all places. They're discovered in libraries, in monasteries, in universities, because someone looks at a Greek manuscript and they're like, I don't know what that is. So they put it in the pages of another book and put it on the shelf. And then how many generations of librarians have come and gone without knowing that that's in there until a student comes along and finds a copy of John's Gospel. That happens. It actually does happen. They're also unwrapping mummies in Egypt and discovering manuscripts of the New Testament inside mummies. Can you believe that? Because how would they mummify people? Back in Egypt, they would just go out, get a bunch of paper, stuff it into the mummy, wrap in linen, get some more paper, and then that mummy becomes a time capsule for the Gospel of Matthew or whatever. Absolutely amazing. I think it's God's providence um, withholding a lot of those manuscripts until we have the actual technology to study them and preserve them. So um, every, every, often, every so often on the news, you know, someone discovers, you know, 
you know, the body of Jesus or the tomb of Jesus or, you know, like the blanket of Mary or whatever, you know, and it's, you know, it's sensational. The nice thing is that discoveries of texts, Dead Sea Scrolls, New Testament manuscripts, those are real. Those aren't sensational um, fake news. Those are real. Those are real. They don't tend to make the news as much because they're more boring than like the heel bone of Peter and stuff, but they're real. They're real. It's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And you, if you're interested, talk to me afterwards about, you can actually go online and see them. Because like I said, we Christianity, we have nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide. The texts we have are open to scrutiny because we have absolute full confidence that 2,000 years have passed and no one has found uh, the Achilles heel. No one has found the Achilles heel of the Bible. And we're confident that they won't. They won't. So now receive the blessing. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all forevermore. Amen.